Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There's a cartoon that's been making the rounds recently. It's from 1941, and it's of a mom reading a book called Adolf the Wolf to her kids. The kids are horrified, but mom's pretty happy. She's wearing a sweater that says America First, and she tells her kids how the wolf ate up a whole bunch of little children. But she says those were foreign children, and so it didn't really matter. That cartoon was done by the cartoonist Theodore Geisel, who himself would go on to write real children's books, like The Cat in the Hat, Green Eggs and Ham, under the pen name Dr. Seuss. Geisel was staunchly opposed to turning away Jewish refugees from America. He was also against racial discrimination at home because, after all, he figured we were fighting it abroad. But, and this goes to show how complicated fear and people and immigration are, Geisel did not believe in equality for Japanese Americans. He was suspicious of them. His cartoons depict them as pawns of Japan, hoping to cripple America from the inside out. With talk of immigration and immigrants everywhere now, we wanted to ask two big questions in this week's show. How have immigrants changed innovation in America? And what do we stand to lose if they're increasingly either kept out of the country or they're just too scared to come in? Walter Isaacson has written about immigrants like Albert Einstein, as well as Steve Jobs, who's famously the son of a Syrian immigrant. He's also the president and CEO of the Aspen Institute. Walter, good to have you back on the show. It's great to be back on the show. Thank you. So let's go back to the 30s and 40s, which I was talking about um, for a minute, um, to this other major refugee crisis that America faced. And you've written, as I said, about one of the most famous immigrants to come out of that crisis, Albert Einstein. How did Einstein get here? Just give me a sense of that moment. In the 1930s, when anti-Semitism was arising in Germany, he had been traveling to Caltech, to the United States, and he suddenly realized that, well, I shouldn't go back to Germany again. What's interesting is Hitler and the rise of Hitler had led to the expulsion of a whole lot of great scientists like Einstein, Enrico Fermi, Niels Bohr ended up having to leave. What do they have in common? They end up inventing the atomic bomb. And I think if uh, Germany had not frightened them away, they would have stayed in Germany. Right. Okay, so, so give me a sense of like, amongst uh, citizens of America at that time, what was the feeling like about admitting refugees? And how would you compare sort of the American public with politicians? Was there a divide between sort of how everyday ordinary Americans felt about bringing in refugees and how politicians felt? Well, there was a divide and there was an America First movement, which is why the use of America First uh, by the current president uh, can be unnerving to people who know history. Because that phrase, America first, was meant to stop uh, America from admitting refugees, was against Jewish refugees, was against any involvement in the European conflict. Uh, and people like Charles Lindbergh, who were great American heroes, were part of the America first movement. In fact, when Einstein wanted to warn President Roosevelt 
that it was possible to build an atom bomb and that Germany may be doing it. They couldn't figure out how to get a letter to Roosevelt. And some of the Jewish scientists said, well, maybe they should ask Lindbergh to do it, not knowing that Lindbergh was part of the America First movement. And then Lindbergh made one of his notorious speeches, and Einstein wrote to his friend uh, Enrico Fermi and others who were involved in this issue, well, I guess Lindbergh is not our man. Hmm. So knowing history as you do, having written a huge book about Einstein, when you first heard then-candidate Trump um, using this phrase, America first, which obviously has this uh, history. He didn't just, you know, make it up. What did you think? I could not figure out when Donald Trump uh, started using the phrase America first. He did it in an interview where somebody had uh, thrown out that phrase. I didn't know whether he was ignorant of the historical connotations of America first, which would be forgivable. I mean, most people don't uh, study the 30s and its politics, or whether he had done it intentionally, knowing Mm -hmm. the resonance of that phrase. I tend to think it was unintentional. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. What I can't understand is why he keeps emphasizing that phrase, knowing uh, how how, uh, sort of controversial and abhorrent it is to those especially Uh, who were refugees from the Nazis and to Jews and others for whom it meant keep people like them out of the country. So if we we go back for a minute to Einstein and the war and then after the war, one thing that really happened after the war, obviously there was tons of technology that arose to help the war effort. You were talking about the, the bomb, which is a very notable one, but America's tech industry also took off after the war. And I wonder how, if at all, that is connected to people who immigrated to the U.S. during the war or refugees. I think it was immigrants and refugees during the war who helped do things like the atom bomb project that helped win the war. It was also refugees like that all the way through the beginning of Silicon Valley, people like Andy Grove, who had escaped the Nazis and then escaped the communists, who came over and figured out that the scientific principles that Einstein had discovered, uh, including the application of quantum theory to uh, semiconducting materials, could lead to things like transistors and eventually microchips. And so you have an entire explosion of American creativity, largely driven by the great work of immigrants and refugees. And that continued and continues to this day. You look at Sergey Brin, you look at the head of Microsoft, you look at the head of Google at the moment, you look at uh, even Steve Jobs, whose father was a Syrian refugee. These great companies have been uh, propelled by the power of immigration and refugees. How did uh, somebody like Andy Grove, who, who um, helped found Intel, how did he get to America? Andy Grove has a wonderful memoir called Swimming Across, and he actually did have to swim across rivers. He had to escape as a young kid to make it to America. Uh, he was from Hungary. He was able to survive the Nazis as a very young boy, but then when the communists come in, he finally escaped. And America has always been there for somebody like an Andy Grove 
escaping oppression, escaping tyranny. And the payback for America is not just a moral payback, it's an economic payback when people like that become founders of uh, companies like Intel. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with author Walter Isaacson about the role of immigration in America's tech revolution. So, I mean, I think we think of Silicon Valley and California as kind of being the epicenter of where tech comes from. But this is really a global business, certainly has global reach. When you think about the impact of increasing travel restrictions, some bans, um, what kind of impact do you think it's going to have? Because, you know, technology isn't done. There's new generations of technology to come. Take your iPhone out of your pocket or your Android device or whatever. Try to imagine the supply chain. The supply chain spans the world. You know, if we think it's hard to make a pencil, meaning you have to have the lead and the wood and the paint, and it has to do imagine what it's like to do all the components of a great piece of technology. And that really becomes a global intertwined business, just like making automobiles is. When you disrupt that global nature, you're in jeopardy of destroying the entire ecosystem that leads to innovation. Well, you talk to a lot of people, both in Washington and in Silicon Valley. Um, what have you heard from them? Well, obviously, the Silicon Valley people, whether it's been Jeff Bezos or the le- at Amazon or the leaders of Google and Apple and uh, Microsoft, have been very strong in saying if you cut off refugees, and this includes H-1B visa holders, in other words, highly skilled people get visas, but if you just cut off all forms of refugees and immigration, we're not going to have the talent pool to be innovative in the future. But it's not just high-tech industries. Let's look at that. I talked to the head of Ford Motor Company and then the head of General Motors. Both were in Washington this weekend. You're not going to lead us into the revolution of driverless cars, for example, unless we can have the best brains in the world be able to come to America and also have the diversity of people that form America's great you know, ferment of creativity. What do you think, if you think about the weeks and months and like even years to come, what do you think will happen when it comes to um, bringing people in from from other places? And as you know, we've been talking about particularly uh, into innovation and into kind of like creating the, the jobs and the technology of the future. America's always had a history of welcoming refugees and welcoming welcoming immigrants and those people adding to the economy. But it's also true since the know-nothings, as they were called in the 19th century, and the American firsters of the 1930s, that there has been, at times, a nativist resentment against uh, immigration. Uh, We've always had to balance these things. Albert Einstein, during the 1950s, when we were going through a McCarthy period and uh, a lot of turmoil that reminds us of today, Uh, wrote to his son and said, I've seen this happen before. This is what Mm -hmm. happened in Nazi Germany. This is what happened with communism. And then a couple years later, after McCarthy had been knocked off the stage by Eisenhower and others, Einstein writes his son and says, you know, American democracy is like a gyroscope. You think it's going to fall over, but somehow it's able to right itself. I think America will right itself. Do you worry that even 
when whatever bands and you know come to an end let's let's assume they do they're, they're temporary that maybe some restrictions expire do you worry that there's a perception problem too i think america has done itself lasting damage that will linger for quite a while even if this travel bans are lifted which is america's always attracted the best most wonderful coolest, most innovative, creative people, because it seemed like a society that wants you to go there. We're in a competition against China. When you start throwing Mexico into the embraces of China as part of their trade system, when you start telling people around the world you're better off studying at Oxford than at Stanford, or you're better off uh, going to Asia rather than the United States, we're going to lose the competition in this world of being the most productive, creative, innovative economy. Walter Isaacson is the author of The Innovators, Einstein, and Steve Jobs, among other books. And he's also president and CEO of the Aspen Institute. Walter, thank you very much. It's great being back with you again. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Albert Einstein and Andy Grove, a co-founder of Intel, are just two of the Jewish emigres who escaped Europe in the middle of the 20th century and boosted American innovation. And we wanted to know, has anyone actually tried to measure how much science in this country was shaped by high-skilled immigrants who came here during and after the war? And it turns out, someone has. In my research, I try to figure out what encourages creativity and innovation. That's Petra Moser. She's an economics professor at NYU. So I've looked at patent laws. I've looked at copyright laws. And one component of that that seems very important is human capital, uh, which essentially is just good people who know stuff. And high-skilled immigrants are precisely those types of people. Before World War II, America was not the beacon for scientific research that it is today. In fact, Moser says, American scientists sometimes had to learn German to keep up with the latest research. But that changed because of the war. Tens of thousands of German-Jewish emigres came to the U.S. Among them were some of the world's best scientists, like Einstein. But there were also thousands of others who toiled away anonymously in research labs. And once they came here, most of them did not have access to high-profile jobs. We shouldn't forget, and I think what's often whitewashed out of the historical accounts is that this was also a period of very vivid anti-Semitism in the United States. So when uh, German Jewish immigre came to the United States, typically they wouldn't get the great jobs. Uh, for example, DuPont uh, was really desperate for highly skilled chemists, but when they got some really good ones, they said they couldn't put them in prominent positions because they looked too Jewish. That doesn't mean the scientists weren't influential, though. And Moser tried to figure out just how much they contributed to American innovation. 
Her question was pretty simple. If you were a post-World War II American scientist, did having a whole new batch of immigrants around you make you more productive? Because essentially, if you think about this, a, the arrival of a German immigrant or any immigrant has two opposing effects. One is that if there's now an immigrant, I have to compete with that immigrant. So I may not be able to publish my papers, for example. Another one is that I can now learn from this new person and I can work with them. And so what we find is that second effect dominated overall so that the American inventors became more productive after the German Jewish immigrants arrived in the United States. Basically, scientists in America, though Moser looks specifically at chemists, started filing more patents. They were inventing more stuff. So what we can do here is we can look at the people, at the American scientists who worked with a German Jewish emigre, and we can look at what happens to their patenting activity. And what we see is that those people actually become more productive. And that pattern of the co-inventors and the co-inventors of the co-inventors becoming more productive matches very closely to the overall increase in patenting that we see in the United States. So what that tells us is that it was not the German-Jewish immigrants themselves that increased invention, but it was what they taught other people and what enabled other American scientists to do that caused this increase in U.S. invention. The boost lasted, and it has reverberated over many decades. So now it's really the United States that's the center of innovation. And so even now, there many extremely good European scientists come to the United States to study. So it's no longer the other way around when before the war, American scientists would go to Europe to do their studies. Now it's the other way around. There are a million international students in the U.S. at the moment. Many of them are studying a branch of science. And if we could keep them here after they graduate, that would likely have major financial upsides. Jennifer Hunt is an economics professor at Rutgers University and the former chief economist at the Department of Labor under President Obama. She has also looked at how high-skilled labor affects U.S. innovation, and she also studies patent productivity. Generally, she says high-skilled immigrants in the U.S., so we're talking college graduates, but some people may have grad degrees, are generating more patents than their American-born peers. The foreign-born are actually twice as likely to patent as natives. She says there are different potential reasons for this. One is, it's tough to immigrate to another country. So the skilled workers who actually make it to America may be gritty and ambitious. But Hunt thinks there are problems with that logic. It turns out that that gap is explained by uh, the concentration of the foreign-born in science and engineering. So it's not that they're in just inherently more innovative compared to Americans who sort of studied the same thing. If you're wondering why foreigners study science in greater numbers, it may be because science is a universal language. Science and engineering, especially science, but also engineering, are the same in all countries. And furthermore, you don't really need very good language skills uh, in order to be a scientist or an engineer. That's not, uh, at, at least when you're doing your innovative work, a different issue is if you want to be promoted into management, that's something quite different. So actually, if we're talking about earnings, that's something different. But for innovation, uh, language is really not the emphasis. But of course, just because America is currently the premier place to get a degree in science or engineering doesn't mean that that's going to be true forever. 
An estimated 17,000 students in the U.S. are originally from one of the seven countries on President Trump's banned list. And some of those bans may be completely lifted in a few months. We don't really know. Odds are, though, that many of those students are studying and doing research in a science or technology-related field. If they decide to study somewhere else, that would be another country's gain. Once again, Petra Moser. So if we restrict immigration and to the extent that this limits the immigration of scientists, it could help revert the balance so that U.S. no longer is a leader in science but becomes a follower again. And then the other thing to think about is that they're network effects. So scientists like to be around other scientists to do their work. And typically, you know, personality, I would say, mostly doesn't matter that much. Uh, ethnicity doesn't matter. What really matters is how smart somebody are. So lots of us don't have the best social skills, but we're smart, right? So in some way, it tells you that the personal characteristics of the people around you are just not that important. What's really important is that you can work with them and that they're smart and that they know stuff. And then, then you can combine that and make create new innovations. And I think in, in that sense, anything that discourages these types of immigrants from coming here or from staying here, say, after they finish graduate school, is going to hurt U.S. science and innovation. And through that, if it hurts U.S. innovation, it's also going to hurt growth in the long run. Petra Moser is an economist at NYU. Jennifer Hunt is an economist at Rutgers. And we're going to have links to their research on our website, innovationhub.org. Since the inauguration a few weeks back, I feel like my life has become a haze of reading and listening to politics, falling asleep, and then waking up and doing the same thing all over again. So it feels like a very long time ago. It was actually January 27th, but it feels like a long time ago. When President Trump stopped refugees from coming into the country and halted immigration from seven countries. Protesters, of course, started to flock to airports, and I started to pay attention to one particular guy on Twitter. I'd actually met him in person a couple of times, though I did not know him well. His name is Bilal Zuberi. He's in his late 30s, he's very smart, and he's a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. We served together on the advisory board of the Lemelson Foundation, which is a nonprofit that encourages invention and inventiveness, mostly in kids, and it meets once a year. One of the first things that caught my eye on Bilal's Twitter feed were letters that his kids had written to the president. So I emailed him and I asked him if he had time to talk. And Bilal, you said yes. So thanks for being here. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So what are you hearing? Like if you go out to get a cup of coffee or if you're around people at work, like what kind of things do you overhear? Oh, God, <laughs> the overwhelming discussion with each other is, did we just wake up into a terrible dream? Is this a nightmare that if we just went back to sleep, it'll go away? We cannot believe what is going on. There's this tremendous anger at uh, at some of the stuff that's getting talked about, and now we're seeing in action around the policy front. People are worried and scared. There are people who are really scared about their dreams getting shattered because they'll be sent back or they won't be let back in. They have families that are abroad that they're worried about them not being able to see each other. In such an environment, I have to say there are people who have been publicly posting that I simply cannot 
code anymore. I just cannot focus on work anymore. I just have to figure out what I need to do to make sure that this chaos goes away and and the the worst of the possibilities here do not come to be. I know you were a grad student right after 9-11 happened, and uh, you had to put your name on a registry because you were an international student. You were also from a Muslim country. Um, And then you were going on a trip to Mexico with other scientists, and officials at the airport didn't give you an exit interview, and so they didn't want to let you back in when you were trying to come back to the U.S. Since so many people now have been or are caught in that kind of legal limbo, Um, You know, thinking about this possibility of deportation, which was presented to you at the time, um, what did it feel like to to face potential deportation? What did it feel? First, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear because you put everything on the line to achieve your goals and ambitions. And you feel like this entire house that you're trying to assemble is all going to fall down all upon you. So that, that, that sinking feeling in your heart that this is all going to fall apart is really painful. I cannot describe what it is like. And, you know, as I think about people who are coming in from other countries, whether they're students who are getting their visas canceled or whether they're green card holders who have jobs and aspirations of building a life here are being told you cannot come in anymore. I can only imagine what they're going through because in some ways I kind of went through that a little bit. The second thing is is this intense emotion internal where there's anger on one side because you feel like this is your right and your right is being taken away from you. You've done nothing wrong. You've, if anything, you've been an exemplary citizen of the Mm. state during this time. So there's this anger. But at the same time, you're like, but I got to control this anger because this anger is like, you, you can't express it and you can't let this take you over. Right. You, you can't let this lead you into any dark alleys. You believe in what America stands for and you believe in eventually law and order to prevail. And you eventually believe in, in my case, I was, you know, I believe in goodness to prevail. What was worrisome was that this belief in goodness might reside in the goodness of this one man that may be deciding my fate uh, in a secondary inspection screening at the Customs and Border Patrol. Mm-hmm. Right. So when all of your American ideals come down to does this guy standing in front of me believe in the same ideals that we talk about as the American ideals? That's a little bit scary. So now you've got two young kids, as I said, uh, both your daughter and your son wrote, um, I guess, letters to to President Trump because you posted them on Twitter and I I saw them. Um, Can you read what your daughter and and what your son wrote? (laughs) Sure, sure. So. My my children are American-born citizens. We have taken pride in instilling in them uh, a patriotism and nationalism, but also a sense of civic duty. Uh, and we're trying to do that as they as they grow up. Their mom was not okay with them joining me at the demonstration, uh, so instead the mom said, "You know, you guys can can write a letter to President Trump." Um, my son, uh, who is um, six years old, drew a sad face. Uh, with tears coming out of the eyes, uh, and it read, Dear Trump, I am sad that you're being mean to us. Hmm. And of course, with all the spelling mistakes you would expect (laughs) from from a six-year-old. My daughter, who's eight years old, wrote a, a longer letter saying, Dear Donald Trump, can you please stop being mean to Muslims? And I don't like the idea of building a wall between America and Mexico, because two reasons. 
one, <laughs> it is unconstitution, unconstitutional, and B, because I'm a Muslim. Please reply. P.S. My friend is Mexican. <laughs> and she had a sad face and she said feeling on it. She drew stick figures of Americans on one side, Mexicans on the other, all hmm. sad in a wall. And she said, don't want. But what's interesting is she signed it as sincerely Isla Zuberi. Okay. She wrote her last name. So my wife, when I came back, she showed it to me and she said, maybe she shouldn't put her last name because hmm. then she can be identified. Right. And my daughter's like, but I want to be identified. I want President right. Trump to reply to me. Right. And it was this, this, this conversation inside the house of like, you know, should you be scared that you are saying something that the president may not agree with? Or right. you're, and, and I think it was, it was a moment of learning not only for them, but I think for, for the adults in the household as well. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Bilal Zuberi, partner at Lux Capital, a venture capital firm in Silicon Valley. Do you think that fewer immigrants will come to Silicon Valley, will start companies? And obviously, there's a huge number of companies that have been founded or co-founded. It depends on the, the numbers you look at, but some statistics say something like 50% have been co-founded or, or founded by an immigrant. Well, is, do you think that's going to change? I really hope not. But I am worried about this, um, not only because of the statistics of how many companies have uh, founders and co-founders who are immigrants into this country, many of them students who come here as students and stay on. We train them, we educate them, and then they do good things for us and create jobs, myself being an example of that, frankly. But I do worry that people... People don't want to come to unfriendly countries. People don't want to come where their lives and property are at risk. We are entering a stage where it's not just a matter of, oh, there's somebody down the road who may not like me. The hidden racism that may have been and, and that we were obviously constantly as a society fighting against and trying to be better. Uh, it has become blatant. It's almost right. It's okay to to say racist or sexist things. It's okay somehow to denigrate people and, and frankly, to become violent. And I think that is really scary because that is not what uh, immigrants want, but more importantly, those that we want to come here, those who are smart and educated and looking for, they're ambitious and are looking for an opportunity to build some something of themselves. That, I think, is at risk. We're already starting to hear people ask for, you know, international scientific and engineering conferences to be held outside the country, because hmm. if a lot of the world cannot visit here, right. then, then these conferences should move out. That's not good. That's not good for our researchers. We're already hearing about companies thinking about setting up uh, operations outside because they can't bring the employees here. So we might have to just keep them outside. And frankly, what this will do is drive away the best immigrant entrepreneurs that we have here. Because if, if they're really that good, if they're really on the verge of starting the next Apple or Google or Facebook or Microsoft, then, then they are in demand elsewhere as well. And frankly, if it was uh, better, easier, convenient for them uh, to be in other parts of the world, be it, you know, London, Berlin, Dubai, Singapore, Hong Kong, all of these names are being discussed now, mm -hmm. then they would do that. Is there already, do you think, a perceivable shift, you know, with some of the best and brightest, like moving away to those places? I don't mean one or two people, but is this really happening in a perceivable way? 
Well, certainly in the, uh, I would say in the in the Arab community uh, and in communities from Iran and Pakistan, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is definitely a phenomenon. Okay. That's you know uh, that that's not just a random guy I know, mm-hmm. but like four of my friends have have moved um, to in this case Dubai and and other places to start their companies. Mm-hmm. So yes, that's definitely happening. But you know we're gonna fight back. We're, we're we as Silicon Valley, we need these people here. We want them here. These are the kinds of people that Silicon Valley was built on top of. And 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 I think um, you know we we're not gonna give up. Like I don't think despite anything that might happen in Washington D.C. and 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 the you know unconstitutional laws or executive orders and what else may come down we're not ready to give up which is what i think you're seeing um you know when when from sergey brin the founder of um google to um to to uh, you know all kinds of ceos of companies that we use every day are out there speaking aloud about this joining the protests giving money to aclu you know having funds created to protect their employees who are abroad um I, I think you know we we consider this not only you know what we need to do to for our own businesses, but this is really at the end of the day we have to do this for ourselves and for our country. So that that leads to a really interesting question, which is as you said, the reaction was very swift in terms of CEOs and companies, whether it's Howard Schultz at Starbucks or you know Brian Chesky at Airbnb, getting out there and saying we're going to pledge help in this way, or we're going to take this action, or as you said, here's a bunch of money for uh, American Civil Liberties Union. But how much leverage, how much power does Silicon Valley really have here? You know, when you think about the weeks and months to come, what can they really do? You know, it's, it's it's an important discussion to be had. Clearly, this president did not emerge out of a rat hole that nobody knew it existed. He lived in the middle of all of these people hobnobbing with entrepreneurs and executives and living in New York City and whining and dining with them. So he has friends in this sector. He has people's, people whose opinions he, uh, even if he disagrees with, he at least listens to. People like the Uber CEO or the Tesla CEO are on his business advisory council. People like Peter Thiel are close advisors to him on at least technology and, and, and some business issues. So these people have his his ear. I'm not sure how much they will uh, be able to convince him, but they definitely have an audience and they need to speak their conscience and they need to, um, you know, help um, sanity prevail that politics should be secondary. What's good for America should be first. And that data is clear. Immigrants build businesses. Immigrants create jobs. Immigrants create value for our country. Immigrants are ambassadors of friendship and respect, not only in our own communities, but they really are the best ambassadors of American optimism abroad. When when I go back, you have no idea how many people I talk to and, you know, they start their discussion with America hates us and the conversation ends up as, you know, awesome that you like Twitter and Facebook and Uber and these are all <laughs> Americans who are building this every mm. day. So, you know, we need these global connections. We cannot, you know, it sounds... Uh, awkward to be saying this in 2017, but we're not in 1950s. We can't build a wall around us. We we do business worldwide. Uh, you know, for every product that we have, 
there's an equal product that somebody else somewhere else in the world is producing. And if we are seen as the enemy, we really stand to suffer. For every Uber, there's an Ola cab or there's a Didi Kwedi or there's a Kareem. For every Tesla, there's a Faraday Future or there's tons of other companies out of China. And I think this is a global market. And, and if you lose in this in this world where branding really matters, where people buy Apple products because as much as they buy for the quality they buy to be associated with the company of right, Apple, right. Uh, if we as a country become somebody that people don't want to associate with, then we have really big problems. And the reason you see Silicon Valley out there is not only because the Muslims today are are uh, at stake and, and Muslims today are being categorized and, and singled out because they realize that tomorrow it could be another population. Mm -hmm. It could be the blacks, it could be the Mexicans, it could be the Jews, it could be anybody. And uh, and this is just entirely an American, and we cannot allow this for the long-term future of the country. Bilal Zuberi is a partner at Lux Capital, a venture capital firm in Silicon Valley. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Very nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. see the letters that Bilal Zuberi's son and daughter wrote to President Trump in their own handwriting. That's at facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. And from Destination Medical Center, with Mayo Clinic at its heart, DMC is a strategic economic initiative committed to making Rochester, Minnesota the world center for life science and health. Learn more at dmc.mn. We've talked a lot on this show and in society in general in the last few weeks about immigration into the U.S., but it's not just people moving here that looks to be slowing down. It's also mobility within our own country. New research shows that America, which used to be all about seeking out the best opportunities, you know, go west, young man, or if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. Those moves have been happening less and less. Why? Abigail Wozniak has been trying to answer that question. She's an economist and an associate professor at the University of Notre Dame. She co-authored a paper on this phenomenon. Abigail, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you argue that the U.S. job market is getting less dynamic, um, and it has been since the early 80s. Was that finding surprising to you? Well, in a, in a sense, I will say it was not a surprise um, because we started digging into that um, as a result of some other work that we'd done looking at geographic mobility among U.S. workers, so specifically the share of workers who are making long-distance moves of some kind, whether it was to a new metropolitan area or across state lines. And what we'd found in an earlier paper was that that had also been declining since sometime between 1970 and 1980. Um, and that did, I would say that initially did really surprise us. Um, we had started digging into that based on a number of concerns voiced by both policymakers and the media 
that during the Great Recession, people started moving less. There was concerns about um, homes being underwater and that that might make it more difficult for homeowners to resettle to labor right. markets with better right. opportunity. Um, so there was a lot of anxiety for a, a little while around that possibility. And then what we were able to show is that, in fact, yes, uh, moving did go down in the Great Recession, but it's really almost a straight line back to that inflection point, that turning point between 1970 and 1980. Um, and so that did really surprise us that it had been a pretty continuous trend for that long a time period, and it hadn't received a whole lot of attention up to that point. So does that mean, I guess that means people are just like not taking as many out-of-state jobs as they used to. People aren't sort of saying, well, I got I could get a better position if I move from Cleveland to Los Angeles, if I move from Seattle to Houston. People aren't doing that as much. That's right. And it's not just people saying, you know, I'm not finding anything better far away. It's also people saying, I'm not finding anything better where I am. So when we look at, you know, who's changing employers, it's not just that changing employers has gone down among people who would have to make a long distance move to do that. Changing employers has actually gone down among everyone, you know, people who stay in a big metropolitan area and people who make that long distance move, um, people who have a BA or higher, people who have a high school education um, as their final degree. We see this over a really broad swath of workers. Um, and so for us, that really pointed to a big shift in the labor market with geographic mobility um, as important as it is, but being really a follow on effect um, behind what is changing in the labor market. What's so surprising to me about this is that I feel like it runs completely counter to the narrative that I think a lot of people embrace, which is you know, gee, these days people go from job to job, like the tenure at each job is a lot less. It used to be that people would work 10, 20, 30, 40 years at the same job. Those days are gone. But you're saying, no, people are really committed and like they used to be more mobile, no more. Yeah, and so I get asked this a lot when I talk about my work because it is very counter to what yeah, people it's feel. Like it's it's counter to everything people believe. And I think honestly that's talked about in the media in terms of like now people, you know, are at places for six months and it, it, there's no stigma and they just make a change. Yeah. So we have a couple of answers to that. Um, and I should mention this has mostly been joint work um, with co-authors who also are research economists at the Federal Reserve. I will say up front, I think this is not that well measured in data that we have readily available. Um, and I think there's a little bit of disagreement about this among economists. Um, but the people who have the best data, um, and as far as we can tell in our own data, what's happening is that you're right, those 20, 30, in some cases, 40-year jobs, those are becoming less common. So if you look at the share of the workforce who has what we would call really long tenure, and in our data, we define that as eight years or more, which maybe isn't super long, but that's enough to see the change. People who have really long tenures are becoming a smaller share of the workforce. So those really long jobs are going away. But the other thing that is also decreasing are these instances of really short jobs. So we're able to measure um, in some of the data that's available whether someone's had a job for as 
as little as a quarter, so three months out of the year. Um, we've looked in our own analysis at people who've had jobs for a year or less. Those fractions are also going down. Um, and so that means that people are taking a job that they thought was going to maybe be brief or that in the past, two decades ago, it would have been a short stint, and then they would have moved on to something else. And those are turning into longer-term jobs for them. So um, one thing I often ask people to do, it is pretty easy to think of people who, you know, they kind of up and left and there was something new for them. But also think of how many people you run into who are in a situation that they thought was going to be much shorter than it turned out to be. Um, and that is what we are finding in the data is actually becoming more common. Um, people think, you know what, I'll just do this for a little bit, maybe for a year. I hear a lot of students graduating. They say, I'm going to just do this for two years, and then I'm going to switch to something else. And then they come back five years later, and they're still doing that same thing. Um, it, is, it is just getting harder to make those transitions. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub, and I'm talking about why Americans are moving around the country less than they used to. Uh, with me is Abigail Wozniak. She's an economist and an associate professor at the University of Notre Dame. What switch did somebody flip or what happened? Like, what force was going on in the job market, in the economy that, you know, people were taking jobs in California and then they were moving to the Midwest and they were and then they were moving to New England and, and to Florida. And then it all started to kind of, as you say, sort of slide back towards um, people staying put. Yeah, I wish I had a single kind of silver bullet answer for that. We actually have a lot stronger evidence for what did not switch. Um, so the first one is aging. So the population workforce also has started to get older. Older folks, you know, they do stay in jobs longer than young folks. They move less. They're more settled. So you would think that might cause some of this just overall less fluidity in the labor market, less geographic mobility. We don't find much evidence of that. So as much as that's a factor in a number of other things, doesn't actually seem to be a factor, particularly for these job changes and for long distance moves. Another thing that we spent a long time working to cross off, but again, I think is really interesting and important, is this long run rise in inequality in the US. So to us, we thought, well, look, this is the same exact period of time where the US has seen a really big run-up in inequality. We've seen a hollowing out of the number of jobs available for middle-skill and middle-earning workers. This seems like the kind of thing that maybe could slow things down. If the middle's gone, you can't move up very easily. Um, maybe it's not worth it to move for a lower-paying job, and since you can't move up to the middle, people stop switching as much. Um, maybe people get more cautious and they start spending more time looking for matches. Um, so we thought this could be part of the rise in inequality. And what we found, um, and we found this, I think, initially really surprising, is that actually in states where they had the biggest run-up in inequality, they had the smallest declines in fluidity. And that's actually, unfortunately, and this also goes to whether this is a happy story or a sad story, that's because um, rising inequality displaced a lot of folks. And that increased transitions, you know, compared to states that were having less of a run-up in inequality. Is there a difference in uh, 
wealthy people moving versus uh, middle income or lower income people. I mean, I think that many people, when they think of people moving across the country to take jobs, moving to New York, moving to Silicon Valley, that kind of thing, they are thinking, uh, you know, when somebody uproots their whole family, they very, they very often think of, you know, getting a very lucrative job. And that would be a reason for maybe moving away from your extended family. But the incentive is so high. Um, and you also have certain sectors like banking and so on that tend to be on the coast, technology that tend to be on the coast, and people moving around because of that. Um, are higher income people more likely to say, I'm just picking up my stuff and my family and I'm going to move? So there's definitely a difference in average levels of moving across people by educational category. Um, okay. And definitely, in, and this is in kind of different work, but um, with, with another team of co-authors, I've been able to show that going to college is actually something that will later on boost your geographic mobility. It actually has this causal effect of that. It's not just that people who are more likely to pick up stakes are also more likely to go to college. Um, so by getting that higher education, we actually transform workers into people um, who are more likely to be able to make those kinds of changes. Abigail Wozniak is an economist. She's also an associate professor at the University of Notre Dame. She co-authored a paper called Understanding Declining Fluidity in the U.S. Labor Market. We will link to it at our website, innovationhub.org. Abigail, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help this week from Matt Toda. And to all our new listeners on WBEZ in Chicago, welcome. We are thrilled to have you. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Innovation Hub is sponsored by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe and by the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. PRI, Public Radio International.